0: Welcome to Between Two Lips, a podcast dedicated to all things pelvic health for women. I'm your host, Kim Bobney, the Vagina Coach, and I am excited to share with you information from leading pelvic health professionals from around the world, stories from women at all life stages who have faced struggles and successes, and of course, I share a little about my own pelvic health journey as well. There is too much silent suffering associated with the female pelvis and I am on a mission to change that. It's time we talk openly about a part of the body that deserves a whole lot more attention than it gets. Join me each week for casual and candid conversations that will both inform and inspire you to optimize your pelvic health for life. Welcome to Between Two Lips. In this week's episode, we are exploring bladder issues. I am joined by Dr. Sarah Boyles, who is known as the Women's Bladder Doctor. Dr. Sarah Boyles is a physician who specializes in female pelvic floor health. She is a board-certified physician in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She has spent her entire professional career focusing on the pelvic floor and treating women with pelvic floor issues. She believes that bladder leaking may not seem like a serious health concern, but it makes life so much less enjoyable. All those little leaks can add up to decreased fitness, lack of self-esteem, relationship issues, and even depression and anxiety. She has helped more than 5,000 women find a solution for bladder issues that works for them. Dr. Boyles is married to her college sweetheart, and they have two kids ages 12 and 14. She also has a happy dog and a grumpy cat. Dr. Boyles lives in Portland, Oregon, and loves the rain and the resulting lush green landscape. She is on the governing board of her local surgery center and is on the medical advisory board for Renovia, a company that makes a pelvic floor muscle trainer. She has been a member of the American Urogynecologic Society's Quality Committee for several years and has worked on their quality registries and quality improvement projects. We chatted about how she got started, what led to her joining the social media world and focusing on bladder health as the women's bladder doctor. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, exploring the different types of incontinence, including overactive bladder, what treatments she has in her offerings and what surgeries she recommends if the conservative methods aren't working or aren't what the patient is willing to do. We also discussed the use of mesh, which is always a big concern for anyone choosing pelvic surgery. We talked about pessaries and also her tips on maintaining optimal bladder health. I really love her down-to-earth approach and her willingness to explore all options with her patients so they have the quality of life they deserve. All right, let's get to the full episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Between Two Lips. Today, I am joined with the women's bladder doctor, Dr. Sarah Boyles. Hello, Dr. Sarah. Welcome. Hello. It's nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show and sharing
1: your wisdom. I always appreciate everything you have to share. Thank you so much. I'm I'm happy to be here, right? I think you do such a good job educating and helping women, and I'm happy to support you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Likewise. So we, like many people that I know, met on the Internet, and <laughs> we've been... We promote one another and share each other's content, and I really appreciate the work that she does for promoting pelvic health, but also specifically the topic of bladder health, incontinence, and also the surgeries that come along with that. So if you can start out with, first of all, just introducing yourself and what your background is, what led you to be where you are now, and why did you choose to specialize in bladder health?
1: Yeah. So, my name is Sarah Boyles. I'm a urogynecologist. I have been in practice here in Portland, Oregon since 2006. So, I have a busy clinical practice. I take care of a lot of women, only women, with prolapse and incontinence. And, you know, I I think the most common question I get asked is, why do I Why do I do this? And, you know, for me, these issues are so very common. They have such a dramatic effect on quality of life for women. And women really need someone to talk to who can help them, right? There's a lot of shame around these issues or. Maybe just a lack of knowledge. And so I think increasing that awareness and education is just so very, very important. And for me, I really enjoy my clinical work. I enjoy what I do in the office, but I know that I can reach more people. I know there are a lot of women who just aren't ready to go see anyone or maybe don't have anyone who's close to them or convenient and they're just really not sure what to do. So I'm just looking to help and educate more women out there. You know, my goal would be to get to people before they actually need my services, right? I don't want everybody to get a surgery. I just want people to, you know, kind of improve their symptoms. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I have that that same passion. I wish that everybody would be proactive. I, I wish the seed was planted earlier in life so that we were given some tools and some information and some insight as to the importance of this part of the body, but also things we could be doing along the way to...
1: to yeah help prevent the major the major issues, right? Absolutely. Because a lot of times it's a wait a second, nobody told me this yes. was gonna happen. And, you know, there's you know, people don't talk about it, women don't talk about it with their friends. I mean it's better now than it's ever been. But then, you know, you're not sure what to do. You're you know, it's different than, you know, let's say it's just a urinary tract infection infection. I mean, most women aren't comfortable talking about that with friends, but you know, if you're leaking or right. there's something h- hanging out of your vagina who who do you talk to about that right, right? i yeah. mean there's just a lot of you know for some people shame and for other people just kind of confusion what do i what do i do with this and mm-hmm. and surely i am the only person going through this which is definitely yes. not the case
0: yes 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 so what are the most common you mentioned incontinence and prolapse now because you're the women's bladder doctor does that mean that you only treat incontinence and bladder prolapse or would it be, would all types of prolapse fall under there?
1: No. So in my clinical work, so in my medical practice, I see women with prolapse. I see women with urinary incontinence. I see women with fecal incontinence. I've chosen online and with social media to kind of specialize on urinary incontinence and bladder issues just because they're so very, very prevalent and they affect women of all ages. And I think a lot of women really assume that this is an older women's issue or an unattractive women's issue, right? I mean, they don't realize that this happens to everyone. It happens to young, beautiful athletes, just like anybody else. And so, I've just really chosen to focus on that kind of in the digital world. Got it. So, your your in-person practice really is a pelvic
0: health practice online, mm-hmm. really it's focusing all pelvic on floor. the contents. Got it. Correct. Okay. So, the the main parts of, of what I want to cover with you today would be focused around the bladder, given that that is where you're specializing online as well. And I yeah. want to kind of explore the different types of incontinence. So you mentioned urinary incontinence and you mentioned fecal incontinence. Can you explain the types of urinary
1: incontinence and also what fecal incontinence would mean? Yeah, so fecal incontinence is when you can't control stool or bowel movements, right? And it can be flatal. You know, we like to give everything everything kind of a special formal name, but it's, you know, f- flatul incontinence is basically when you fart and you don't want to, yeah. right? Which, you know, medically may not seem like a big deal, but that it, that is a huge social issue it becomes, you know, pretty common for a lot of women after they deliver. Mm-hmm. And then fecal incontinence is when you can't control stool, whether it's solid stool or liquid stool. Mm-hmm. And that happens much less commonly than urinary incontinence, but it still happens. And you know when that happens and that's an issue it's very devastating for women because it's mm-hmm. just so much harder to hide and control right right yeah so
0: that's a it, there's lots of pelvic health conditions that can be very life altering but some of them mm-hmm. as you say are easier to mask than others and fecal Correct. or anal incontinence is definitely one that would be much more difficult and more definitely more restricting if if you're think mm-hmm. if you think you're going to lose stool or fart randomly
1: you're not going to be wanting to leave the house right yeah yeah i I mean it is it is very devastating and and it can happen to women after delivery you know sometimes there's kind of this transient muscle and nerve damage that happens after a delivery and sometimes that'll resolve pretty quickly but sometimes it doesn't and then you know there. are Intervention is definitely needed at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So, and and I think one of the important things to realize is that, you know, when these things happen, a lot of times it's a system failure, right? Just like high blood pressure is a system failure or a change in your system. It, it's not a regression. I mean, there shouldn't be any shame about it. You shouldn't feel like, you know, you're a little kid and, and can't control these things anymore. There's right. actually nerve and muscle damage that has been done. It's not in your head. I mean, it is actually a medical condition. Right, right. Yeah, that's super important. Mm -hmm. So that's the the
0: anal incontinence piece. And then urinary incontinence, there are different types of urinary incontinence. Can you explain
1: what those would be? Yeah, so there are four different types. The two most common are stress urinary incontinence, which is when there's a pressure in your abdomen that pushes the urine out. So symptoms are leaking with coughing, sneezing, exercise, laughing. And then there's urgency incontinence, which is also called overactive bladder, which is when your bladder muscle squeezes when you don't want it to. So your bladder should really only contract or squeeze when you're sitting on the toilet and your brain is telling your bladder to empty. And when this happens at other points in time, we call it overactive bladder or urgency incontinence. And that gives you that feeling of frequency, urgency, needing to run to the bathroom, being afraid you're going to leak before you get there, or maybe actually leaking before you get there. So that's urgency incontinence. There's also mixed incontinence, which is stress and urgency, right? So you can get both, which may not seem fair, but is true. And then there's there's overflow incontinence, which is basically when you're not emptying well at all. Your bladder is always full and you're walking around with, you know, 10 to 20 ounces in your bladder and some just leaks out at random points in time. That's much more uncommon and it's often due to kind of a, a nerve issue. And when that happens, the symptoms of leakage are, are pretty unpredictable. It usually doesn't feel like it's following a pattern at all. So, mm-hmm.
0: okay. I want to talk about overactive bladder because I hear a lot of people who will say, I have an overactive bladder or I have a small bladder. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes people believe they have the medical condition of overactive bladder, but maybe it's been behavioral. Maybe they have developed that because they just have trained themselves to go more often would that be considered would you agree with that or what like what dis, what determines if somebody has true overactive bladder versus somebody who has urges and is going Kind of pee just in case?
1: It, it's hard to tell, right? I, I mean, symptomatically, it's hard to tell. You can actually do a formal study where you put a catheter in the bladder and you measure the pressure, right? And if the bladder is contracting, you'll see the pl- pressure go up. And if that pressure goes up and there's actual uh, uh, a contraction in the bladder, then that is technically urgency incontinence or detrusor overactivity where you actually see the muscle contract. But you can be just as bothered by your symptoms if if you've trained yourself to do that. But a lot of times we don't realize what we've trained ourselves to do, right? Right. right? So I, I think most of us, you know, especially behaviors that you do all the time, you, you don't really realize what you're doing, right? So a, a lot of times with overactive bladder, one of the first things that we do is we have women do a voiding diary, mm-hmm. where you write down what you're drinking for 24 hours and you write down when you're emptying. And just that exercise can frequently be all the treatment that someone needs, right? Mm -hmm. Where you realize, oh my gosh, I'm running to the bathroom all of the time, but I am drinking 32 ounces of water, you know, every three hours. And that's clearly what's driving this, right? Right. Or I'm fine until I have carbonated water. And then that carbonated water is really what's causing the problem. But, you know, when you've kind of started a habit, you, you you don't always realize it. And then likewise, you know, some people just go to the bathroom all the time and you train your bladder to not want to be full, Mm -hmm. right? So women with stress incontinence frequently develop overactive bladder symptoms because they know if they're empty, they're going to leak less. And so they go to the bathroom all the time. And then mm-hmm. sooner or later, their bladder says, hey, I really like to be empty. Let's yeah. go to the bathroom again, <laughs> right? And then you've kind of started this whole behavioral sequence. And you can reverse that, but it's really hard to reverse if you don't trust your system, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of yeah. times in that situation, if we fix the stress incontinence, that overactive piece gets better because you, you're willing to go through feeling a little bit full because you're not so worried about leaking.
0: Right, right. So what are the, there's lots of different treatments available for mm-hmm. the different types of incontinence. So let's start with stress urinary incontinence. If somebody came to you and they purely have stress urinary incontinence, what would be your recommendations for treatment?
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I think the important thing is to always talk to people about when it started and kind of how it happened. Because sometimes women will say, you know, I've had this for a while. And then you talk to them a little bit longer and they say, well, you know, it really got bad when I when I gained that 10 pounds, hmm. right? Or it really got bad when I went through menopause and my estrogen levels dropped, right? And so, if I can figure out what I think made it worse, mm-hmm. then, then I think that that's a good place to start. So, you know, there is some information about hormones affecting incontinence. So, if mm-hmm. it seems like it correlates In terms of time, you know, when it all started, then that's something I'll try. Weight loss will definitely make stress incontinence better. I think you should always start conservatively, right? Mm -hmm. So starting with pelvic floor strengthening, I think, is the place to always start. As long as that is acceptable to that particular woman, right? Mm -hmm. So if I meet someone and they say, you know what, I'm not going to do that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then you know, let's, okay, then we'll skip that, right? Right. Because there's no point in, in, you know, pushing that too far, even if I do think it'll really help. And then right. I always talk to women about pessaries,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So I think pessaries, or pessaries for incontinence, because there are pessaries for prolapse, I think pessaries for right. incontinence are are great. I mean, especially mm-hmm. if you leak during a specific activity, right? and it's pretty predictable. I mean, then I think of that as just another piece of exercise equipment. Right. Yep. Right? And I... I think that's a great way to do it. And then after that, we talk about, you know, surgeries and and procedures.
0: So I was watching recently a couple of posts you made on one therapy I have heard of before and another one I have not heard of before. So the first one is PTNS. Mm -hmm. Can you describe what PTNS is and how that works to treat incontinence?
1: Yeah. So how it works is, you know, there's like many things in medicine. There's a little bit of hand waving there where we're not 100% sure that it works. So PTNS is a treatment for overactive bladder, and it is technically a third line treatment, right? So with overactive bladder, we always start with pelvic floor strengthening, urge suppression, right? Teaching you different techniques to try to minimize the urge. Bladder retraining, trying to see if you can hold more. Some people have a small bladder, but most people don't. Most of the time you can train yourself to hold more unless there's something like you've had pelvic radiation. Second line therapy is medications and supplements. And then third line Procedures is everything else. And PTNS actually started because there's some information showing that acupuncture helps with overactive bladder, and it's based on an acupuncture point. And so, if you stimulate this point on the ankle by the tibial nerve, and you do it for 30 minutes once a week for 12 weeks, it will calm down overactive bladder. So, that nerve is not a nerve that directly stimulates the bladder. But the thought is that when you stimulate this nerve, it decreases the crosstalk between the nerves and this overactivity that affects overactive bladder.
0: Got it. So so, it's, yeah. so PTNS stands for percutaneous tibial Percutaneous
1: tibial nerve stimulation.
0: Right. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that would be more indicated for somebody with urgency or overactive bladder as opposed right. to stress incontinence. Is that correct? Correct. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. yeah. And it's a nice therapy because there aren't a lot of side effects, right? Mm-hmm. There aren't systemic side effects like you get with medication, right? Dry eyes, dry mouth, constipation. You know, it's a little needle in your ankle, which is not particularly uncomfortable. Some people hate it, but for most mm-hmm. people, it's fine. So it's, it's you know, the the big negative to that treatment is really time, right? Because yeah. you have to yeah. come to the office. Right.
0: Has there been any investigation into PTNS versus acupuncture? Which one is more effective? Mm -mm. No? Not yet.
1: Not yet. And part of the reason is that a lot of the acupuncture isn't as standardized, right? So I think a lot of times in Western medicine, we're like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. We create these protocols and make it pretty standardized. And with acupuncture, there's a couple of different ways that you can do it. So it's not quite as standardized. Got it. Okay.
0: So I want to ask you about the other treatment In a second. But one thing that you mentioned in there that I want to cover before we move on is urge suppression techniques. What would how would you teach or what would you use for urge suppression techniques for somebody dealing with overactive bladder urgency?
1: Yeah, so you have to be able to do a pelvic floor contraction, right, or a Kegel contraction. So our, our body is pretty tightly controlled, and there are a lot of reflexes. And if you do a pelvic floor contraction, you are contracting your sphincter, right, your urethral sphincter, so that closes off the opening to the bladder, and when that happens, that muscle basically talks to the bladder and says, hey, stop contracting, because they're always supposed to work together, right? So when it's closed, your bladder shouldn't be squeezing. So your bladder squeezing, and so it, it basically yells at it and says, stop doing that. So if you do a series of quick pelvic floor contractions, so four to five in a row, the, the bladder contraction that you're having should stop and go away and then you know that so the goal is for you to do four to five contractions distract yourself do some deep breathing think of a nice place wait for the contraction to go away and then slowly walk to the bathroom and you should be able to get there the stronger your muscles are the better it works it works better if you do it before the contraction becomes very very strong mm-hmm. it is a super easy thing for me to explain it's not very easy to to do at the beginning, right? right, and part of that's because you don't you don't believe, right? You, you don't really the believe that part. this is going to work, yeah, right. And also, once you get nervous about it, you release adrenaline and cortisol, right, and then that kind of counteracts all of that because you start getting nervous, and you know that right. makes you have to pee even more. But learning how to do that can suppress that urge, and then you can slowly get to the bathroom.
0: Okay, and something that I have. I was taught, I don't remember who taught me this and something that I have told people about is to do another method while you're doing Kegels is to go up and down on your toes. So almost like little calf raises, would that be doing something similar to PTNS in a way where it would be somehow
1: talking to that nerve? Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't have a specific answer for you. Right, I'm not sure if if that would do it, or if it's just another way of distracting yourself. Yeah. Right, because yeah. you have to concentrate to do that, and and distracting yourself, and you know, minimizing the focus on the bladder definitely helps a lot when you're doing that. Right, right,
0: okay, cool. And so the next one I wanted to move on to was ecoin. Is that yeah. correct? Ecoin. So mm-hmm. I've never E-Coin. heard of never heard of eCoin. What does eCoin stand for and what does it help with and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so you haven't heard of it because it's pretty much brand spanking new. eCoin's just the name. It doesn't doesn't stand for anything. So PTNS has worked so well. And the one thing we didn't talk about with PTNS is that you do, after you finish this 12-week course, you have to get maintenance treatment. Mm. And we spread out the maintenance treatment. We try to do it as infrequently as possible. But some women get it once a month. Some women get it once every three months. I mean, you you have to be plugged into the clinic, and it has worked so well that a couple of different companies have looked at permanent implants along this nerve. And Equine is the first one, mm-hmm. and it has been available in the United States since March. In general, I would tell you that I, I don't love new things in medicine. I'm not a, an early adapter. I like other people to try things and figure out where the problems are, and and mm-hmm. then. I want to do those things with my patients. There are a couple of other companies that are doing similar techniques. I mean, the technology is a little bit different for each company, but it is basically a small battery that is for the equine. That's the size of a nickel that's implanted along the ankle that also calms down the bladder. And so for patients who've had really good results with PTNS, you know, the thought is that they'll do great with eCoin,
0: Right. And would it stay in for life? Or is it something that you, you know, like kind of like a like a IUD or something? You have it in
1: for a few years? To replace, yeah. So right now the battery is projected to last three to five years. So they're working on that technology. They're thinking that they're going to be able to create a battery that's going to be able to last longer. But right now it's three to five years. And so, you know, when you change that battery, I mean, that's a surgery, right? Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. to make an incision in the ankle and, and pop it up. And so I would say three to five years comes around pretty quickly, right? right? If you're talking about changing out batteries, especially in the ankle, right? The extremities don't always heal quite as beautifully as other parts of the body mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: interesting and so I guess they could technically alternate from one side to the other you can there any difference to the side of the foot like which
1: no no I, I mean I would tell you so either leg can work mm-hmm. but the difference really depends on the patient right? right so some people you know if you've had let's say a broken ankle or you have any hardware in your ankle then you would want to avoid that ankle right. if you have a lot of varicose veins in one leg then you would want to avoid that leg So there are reasons why you would pick one over the other, but you could go back and forth. I don't. I mean, I don't know if I would want an incision on each leg, right? Right, or if I would say just stay on one, (laughs) just stay on (laughs) that one. Yeah, but it's it's not very. I mean, it's a pretty small incision. It's just Mm -hmm. a little bit bigger than a nickel. I mean, the the way they've designed it and the tools that they've created to place this under the skin is it's pretty slick. Mm -hmm. It's actually designed to be done in the clinic. Yeah. just under some local anesthesia local, yeah
0: yeah yeah very interesting okay mm-hmm. I'm going to move on to another therapy that has been around for quite some time and that's Botox for the bladder yeah so Botox most people think of that as something that's injected into the face in sort of an anti-aging type medicine but there are uses within pelvic
1: health as well so can you explain yeah. how Botox would work yeah, so you're right. Botox is the most common cosmetic procedure in the world. But what people don't always realize is that Botox paralyzes the muscle, right? And the reason that it makes you look younger is because you can't do this, right? And you mm-hmm. can't furrow your brow anymore. I clear, my, my Botox has clearly worn off. So in medicine, it you know, there are lots of different clinical applications, you know, so some people will get it, you know, in kind of their head muscles for migraines, for people that have spastic muscles, you can use it. And because the bladder muscle is overactive, when we put Botox in the bladder, that's really what it does, right? It stops that muscle from spasming. Botox works very well. The big problems with it are that one, it wears off usually after about six months, right? And so then you have to replace it. And we usually do that in the office. And it's not terribly uncomfortable but you know I I think most people would prefer to be doing something else and then you know the other thing is that sometimes it works so well that you have trouble emptying yeah so I was gonna
0: ask yeah could Mm -hmm. it happen could it almost be too much of a help yeah
1: oh yeah yeah it absolutely can so you know probably in about one to two percent of patients it'll work so well that you cannot empty your bladder and so you have to catheterize yourself Hmm. right and that will wear off over time Mm-hmm. I think when that happens, it usually probably is about three months where you're having to do that. Yeah, Some patients do not care, right? They're so happy that they're not having to deal with these bladder issues. And they've, even though they may not like self-cathing, they, they're in control of it. Right, right. I mean, they're they're in control of when they're emptying. That mm-hmm. they'll actually pick to do it again. And some people just think it's the worst thing ever, right? And right. then, I mean, if it happens, you never have to have Botox again. So it, you know, it's something that before we do Botox, we talk a lot about that with women. You know, because sometimes when you tell women or tell anybody, look, this doesn't happen very often. It happens one to two percent of the time. They hear, oh, this isn't gonna. This won't happen to me. Right. Right. And then I have to say very mean things like, well, for any one person, it's either 0% or 100%. <laughs> right. And I don't know which one you're going to be. And if right. that sounds like the worst thing in the world to you, then we shouldn't be doing this because right. I, I can't take it out. Right. So,
0: and how, where you're injecting into the detrusor
1: muscle around the bladder, correct? Yeah. So you have to do a cystoscopy. Right. So we take a little telescope, we look in the bladder and then there's this very, very long, very, very skinny needle that you just kind of snake in there and you inject it along the bladder muscle. And usually we inject it in about 10 different spots.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. And is there any sort of, so you mentioned some discomfort, is there any, do do they take any pain numbing medication
1: ahead of time or is it you just go? Usually we put some lidocaine in the bladder. Right. right so lidocaine is just a numbing medicine we don't inject it we just kind of let it sit in the bladder for yeah. you know five to ten minutes and numb everything up and then some lidocaine jelly in the urethra so and and for most people that's fine for some people it's not right and so i i always tell you know women that you know if while we're doing this if you decide this is a bad idea or you don't want to be doing this anymore right we can stop i don't have to keep doing this right right? we can absolutely stop we could do it in a surgery center i mean you can do it under some anesthesia but if you're doing that every six months that's a lot of expense right 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 so so to
0: recap with stress urinary incontinence mainly is pelvic floor strengthening exercise Mm -hmm. type based if somebody is dealing with urgency or overactive bladder it's the suppression it's yep. the behaviors. It's potentially the list of, you say, one, two, three. We didn't talk about medications, which I want to go to. And then if we go then to anal incontinence or fecal incontinence, would treatments be similar? Is there such thing as, would pelvic floor exercise be just as effective or is it different if somebody can has be. anal
1: incontinence? It can be. It can be effective. Yeah. and And for anal incontinence, you know, sometimes it's diet related and figuring out what dietary triggers you have. Mm -hmm. for women it's frequently related to a very significant pelvic floor injury at the time of delivery right so women who have had third and fourth degree lacerations, so you know tears that have impacted the anal sphincter or even all the way into the rectum those women are more likely to have problems later on in life so Mm -hmm. and usually they're they're frequently okay for you know kind of 20 to 30 years but then you know with a change in hormones and a change in strength and just you know the general deconditioning that happens a lot of times with age they'll start having more problems
0: right, right. so yeah
1: but you know with anal incontinence looking at triggers is really important and then a lot of times you know adding in fiber and bulking stool because if your mm-hmm. stool is a little bit bigger and softer mm-hmm. i mean we don't want it to be hard it's easier to control Right. right, and so sometimes just making a couple of dietary changes, or looking at their list of medications, right, because there are definitely medications that make you tend towards diarrhea. You know, looking at those things can frequently make a huge difference. Right, but there is also a pessary that's designed just for fecal incontinence. Right, and you can't have a bowel movement with it in place. You put it in the vagina; it pushes on, you know, the rectum and basically closes things off. And so, for some women, that makes a a huge difference and actually nerve stimulation so there's a sacral nerve stimulation that we do as well and that can help with fecal incontinence too Mm -hmm.
0: and what's the type of pessary what what's the name of the type of pessary that they would use for that one
1: that specifically presses in is there a name for it there is and i it is i am totally blanking okay we'll Um, come back
0: to it i can put it into the show notes when you remember because i kind of put you on the spot there with that one but
1: no but um, i should know it's actually it's hard it's hard to commercially get right now like a lot of things in the world well yeah yeah it's because it's a new device right so yeah i'm googling it it. oh it's called the eclipse that's what it's called
0: okay Mm -hmm. okay i haven't heard of that one before so that's good to know so you talked about medications potentially could be a contributor, and then there's also medications that could potentially help with overactive bladder. It, are there mm-hmm. medications for anal incontinence as well, or would it be something similar? And what would those medications be? Kind of what and what their, what's their mechanism of action?
1: Yeah, so anal you know, incontinence, you know, usually it's fiber and working on stool consistency. And then sometimes we'll give patients medications like amodium, right, which slow down how quickly the food moves through you, which can help a lot. But also they directly work on the sphincter, right, and get the sphincter to close a little bit better. Okay. And
0: then with overactive so, bladder, what are the, the indications, or sorry, what are the medications for
1: OAB? That are there? Yeah, so there are two classes of medications. There's a class called anticholinergics, and the anticholinergics were kind of the first on the market. There are six medications that are in that class, and they basically just let the bladder hold more and get rid of some of that spasm. Those medications are actually associated with a lot of side effects, so constipation, dry eyes, dry mouth, Mm -hmm. uh, and they have recently been associated with memory loss. So the longer you've been on that medication, the higher the dose, the older you are, the more likely it is to be associated with memory loss. Mm And, you know, I think as you get older and you start having a little bit of word-finding issues, like my forgetting what the eclipse is called, you know, being on anything that's associated with that, especially for a quality of life issue, becomes really difficult. So those medications are not quite as popular, although in the U.S. they are insurance companies usually want you to try one or two first before we do anything else. Right. But then there's a, a whole another class of medications. There's two in this category called beta agonists, and they are associated with fewer side effects and no memory loss. So, and those medications are tolerated pretty well. But they are newer, and this may be more of a U.S. thing, but they're newer, so they're more expensive. Right, right. I think that would probably be fairly standard in most places, but. Yeah. And so with, with
0: the anticholinergics, with the dryness component, if somebody was approaching menopause or moving post-menopause, vaginal dryness is also something that can contribute to the exacerbation of all these symptoms we've been talking yeah, about. Could absolutely. it exacerbate vaginal dryness as well?
1: Not, Not usually. I mean, it's funny that you say that. I've never had anyone complain of that. But I think they're so bothered by dry eyes and dry mouth Mm. that they don't even take it long enough until it affects those tissues. But yeah, theoretically, it definitely could.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned earlier, too. So talking about the importance of the hormones. So as we Mm -hmm. approach menopause and as our estrogen levels are declining, that can bring about these symptoms or these conditions for the first time or could potentially exacerbate them. So can you explain a little bit about what's happening there?
1: Yeah, so I I think, you know, most of us are familiar with menopause, right? And, you know, associate menopause when your period stops, right? So the technical definition of menopause is when you haven't had a period for a year. But the truth is that your hormones are changing for years before that, you know, possibly even a decade. So it's pretty common for women who are in their early 40s to start having changes in their estrogen level, There are also other things that can cause a decline in estrogen, right? So some birth control methods, I mean, anything that has higher levels of progesterone can drive down your estrogen. Breastfeeding can do it too, although it is not a good reason to quit breastfeeding. But those are all times where you can get more vaginal dryness, more irritation, more bladder symptoms, and it's really related to the decline in estrogen. So, you know, when we see that, I will frequently have women try vaginal estrogen, right? So we usually start with vaginal estrogen and not oral estrogen, especially if you're not having other symptoms Mm -hmm. so that you're getting the estrogen where you need it and not in your whole system. Right. There are some risks with estrogen. I mean, there are risks with anything, but the risks become very, very small when we give it to you vaginally. Right. Right. Okay. So, yeah.
0: And then kind of ending off now when we've tried all of the other conservative approaches and nothing is working, then surgery is also an option, which could be considered right first off. As you mentioned, some people just know that they aren't going to do the exercise or they're not prepared to do the PTNS or what have you. So surgery then is an option. So what are the, let's talk about stress urinary incontinence. What are the available surgeries and for stress
1: incontinence. For yeah. stress
0: incontinence. And I want to touch on the mesh piece because I know that mesh comes is always a question and a fear of so
1: many people now. Yeah. It, I mean, it is it is always part of the conversation. Yeah. So, you know, the most common surgery that we do for stress incontinence is a sling. And a sling is when you take a piece of material and you put it underneath the urethra. And that will stop leaking with coughing, sneezing exercise about 85% of the time. 10% of people are better, it doesn't work in 5%. And the most common piece of material that we use is a piece of mesh. And the reason for that is that it, you know, it makes it about a 20 minute surgery, it makes the recovery time very, very quick. And the mesh is standardized, right? It works the same in everybody. And so it's a very reliable, reproducible surgery. It's been available in the United States since 1996, so there's good data on it. You definitely can get a mesh erosion, right, where a little bit of the mesh creeps into the vagina. But in general, the complications and the risks are pretty small. There have been some bad meshes that are off the market. Some people aren't comfortable with mesh. They don't like the idea of a foreign body. Some people feel like they react to things. Sometimes they know someone who's had a complication or they just don't like the idea of a foreign body. And then there are other materials that you can use. So you can use your own tissue. Sometimes we'll use your rectus fascia. So your fascia is kind of that strong layer of tissue on top of your six-pack muscles. And we'll take a strip of that tissue and put that underneath the urethra. That's a bigger surgery because you have to have a little belly incision. It takes a little bit longer. Some people have really good tissue, some people don't, right? So it's not quite as reproducible, Mm -hmm. but it, it still works very, very well. So those are probably the two most common surgeries that we do. You can also do a BIRCH procedure. So a BIRCH procedure is where we make an abdominal incision and it can be done laparoscopically or through an abdominal incision. And you, the the vagina is the support underneath the urethra. And you basically put stitches in the vagina and you kind of pull them up to the pubic bone. And that pulls up on the urethra to stop leaking with coughing and sneezing. So it's using your own tissue to resupport the urethra instead of using another piece of, of tissue, right? And kind of a, another piece of material that goes underneath that. That's a, it's a little bit more invasive and it's a little bit less effective. So it's fallen out of, it's fallen out of favor a little bit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we used to do it a lot when we did kind of big open hysterectomies.
0: Right. And would you say, like, this may be difficult to put you on the spot with this question, but of, of the procedures you do, how often is it in conjunction with another procedure such as a prolapse repair or a hysterectomy?
1: It's probably 50-50. Really? I, I have a lot of patients that come in with just stress incontinence. But then, you know, a lot of times when we're fixing prolapse... So when you fix prolapse, a lot of times it's a little bit harder to empty your bladder with a bladder prolapse, and so when we fix that, it it can unmask a little bit of leaking, right? Because you're kind of pulling everything back up, and so because of that, we're always I'm always looking to see if I think you need an incontinence procedure at the same time, and so it's pretty common to do a prolapse procedure and an incontinence procedure at the same time. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So interesting.
0: It's probably fifty fifty. And of the the sling procedures, there's, I think, two different types, one's called TVT and one's TOT, is that correct? Yeah,
1: so there's retropubic, TVT is a brand, so there's a retropubic sling, and that means both of them have vaginal incisions, the retropubic means that the material goes above your pubic bone, Mm -hmm. right? And then the TOT goes, instead of going above your pubic bone, it kind of goes out into your thigh muscles,
0: And is there a reason why one would be chosen over the other? Or is there different success rates between the two types?
1: Yeah, the retropubic sling works better. But it is also associated with more people that have that type of sling have a harder time emptying afterwards. Mm. Right. So anytime we do an incontinence procedure, it always makes it a little bit harder for you to empty. So that's something we're always kind of thinking about and double checking. So retropubic slings work better. but. So in some people, it's harder to empty and they're associated with more blood loss. And so that's kind of where the TOT came about because they were looking to design a surgery that had less blood loss and would make it easier for you to empty that didn't have that potential complication. Right. The, the problem for me is that it's not quite as effective. And, and I think, you know, this is where you get into the surgical in my hands type Mm -hmm. of thing for me it's not as effective as a retropubic sling and every now and then because that mesh goes through i mean it goes through your thigh flexor muscles every now and then i'll have a patient who has one and will notice it when she's exercising right and using those muscles like she'll kind tugging of tugging on it
0: or something yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah and have a little bit of pain and that can be a really difficult thing to fix even if you take it out and and so especially for my you know young super sporty patients it, mm-hmm. it just doesn't seem like a, a good potential complication mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right when- i'll make you drive but you can never run again right
0: yeah and that's a lot of times when people have surgery and the, the symptoms that maybe have held them back from doing some of those activities mm-hmm. are gone. Then now they're like, yeah. if you told them not to do something again, then it would, it would just be, why did I do this in the it first would, place?
1: Right. It would be awful. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I feel like the most common reason that I do a sling, especially in kind of my 40 year old patients, it's either I want to run or I want to play pickup basketball with my kids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Or pick up soccer or. Something like that, Yeah. which I think is a great reason to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 quality of life, and and so my mm-hmm. my as you know, I I'm a huge believer and promoter of pelvic floor exercise, so that's always my first line of defense recommendation. And for people that do choose surgery, I but almost you say, know
1: that that's not you, right? I mean, you like that's oh, all I'm, of the recommendations agree with that. Like you are completely right. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, yes. Okay. But so my my question is. How many people actually listen to that advice do you think? Like what's the rate of recurrence in these surgeries? And maybe you because some sometimes you might see a same patient again, but sometimes you never you don't see that same person. So we don't really totally know. Yeah. How many people do you think
1: follow that advice? To keep exercising and keep keep doing, doing pelvic floor exercise. I think people that did it before do it afterwards. Yeah. Right? So I think one of the mistakes that we make is that, and, and I don't, I actually don't think your program does this, but a lot of times, you know, we're telling people to do Kegel exercises. We're telling to, people to do, women to do something on top of everything else that they're right. doing, right? And, and if you can figure out a way to do those exercises with something you love, right like Pilates or yoga or you can figure out a way to incorporate it in your day-to-day life then I think you're much more likely to keep doing it but if we're talking about just doing you know straight pelvic floor exercises I think it's you know maybe you know a couple of hardcore nurses but not most people
0: yeah, I, you know, when you look at the, the data, and one gold standard is three sets of 10 10 second holds done three times a day, I don't know very many people that Mm-mm. would do that. So
1: No, but if you can increase your awareness, right, mm-hmm. and you're contracting your pelvic floor, as you're doing something else that you love, maybe lifting, or I mean, whatever yeah. it is, you know, I think that's a different story. So I, I yeah. think that's where yeah we frequently are not serving women as well as we could because we're not helping them figure out how to how to maintain it right right do you recommend pelvic floor physical therapy oh yeah all the time yeah Yeah, even with surgery right i think most women have a better outcome if they do pelvic floor physical therapy right and and it's you know, a lot of it for me, especially with prolapse repairs, is I really want the the physical therapist to spend the time with that patient, talking to them about all the things they'd love to do and they want to do, and how they can do it in the way that best protects their pelvic floor. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because I don't want to say, oh, you can't garden, you can't lift, you can't ski, you can't do CrossFit, although I do have some strong opinions about CrossFit, but but, but this is how I think you should do it, right? And this is the way that you're going to protect things the most. And so let's talk about your breathing and let's talk about all these other things that you, you can do. Yeah. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wholeheartedly agree. And then to kind of wrap things up, you talked right at the beginning, very much how I believe we should be behaving or kind of acting in life is how can we prevent these things? What can we be doing to help maintain optimal function? So what would your recommendations be to people to maintain optimal bladder health or even just pelvic health as well?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, I, I think the recommendations are, you know, they're, they're not kind of rocket science, right? They're, they're the things we all know, but the things that we're not good at, right? And so I think that maintaining optimal weight right, is important. Mm -hmm. I think eating well is important, right? And, you know, being well hydrated, but not over hydrated, all of those things become important. I think maintaining activity, right, Mm -hmm. and maintaining good core strength. I mean, good core strength is such a you know great proxy measure for pelvic floor strength in terms of the bladder i mean there's definitely some data about doing pelvic floor exercises and core strengthening during pregnancy Mm -hmm. right to optimize i guess i would say to minimize damage that's done Mm -hmm. during delivery so i think you know starting at that point in time is really important yeah wholeheartedly agree yeah yeah,
0: Dr. Sarah Boyle, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Of course. I appreciate course. your time. I love everything that you shared. I also appreciate everything that you do to, to help serve women's health. So thank you very much.
1: Yeah, of course. This was fun. Awesome. Thank you. So,
0: okay. See you again. Bye. That's it for another episode of Between Two Lips. Thank you so much for choosing to spend part of your day with me. If you are enjoying the show, I recommend subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And I would also be grateful for a positive review. This will help get the information I share into the hands of more people who may not even know that help exists. Finally, I encourage you to take what you learn here and put it into action so that you can ensure that what you hear me and my guests share is not just lip service.